Welcome to a special Interfaith Forum with Congressman Keith Ellison, broadcast live from Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Church and moderator of this Interfaith Forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Keith Ellison represents Minnesota's 5th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives. He's a member of the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party and the first Muslim to be elected to the United States Congress. Before his election to national office, he served two terms in the Minnesota State Legislature representing District 58B. He moved from Detroit, Michigan to Minnesota in 1987 to attend the University of Minnesota Law School where he earned his law degree. In Mr. Ellison's presentation today, the generosity of inclusion, everybody counts, everybody matters, he invites Americans to elevate their civil discourse, to cultivate a spirit of respect, inclusion, and understanding, and in the words of President Obama, to make sure that this country lives up to our children's expectations. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Interfaith Forum, Congressman Keith Ellison. Thank you, Reverend Hart Anderson, for your introduction and for inviting me here today. And let me say thank you to Westminster Presbyterian Church for hosting this event. Uh, I'd also like to thank the Coalition of Faith Groups for sponsoring this Interfaith Forum. The work you do is so very important. And also, special thanks to Minnesota Public Radio and everyone listening. I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about a soldier his name is General Richard Nash. He's an adjutant general of the Minnesota National Guard. He and his uh, soldiers were deployed to southern Iraq, Basra. And as everyone in this room very well knows, this is uh, no easy assignment. It's tough. It's a dangerous environment. And, of course, the situation that he entered was, was violent. We've seen Chaldean Christians have their churches burned, Shia shrines destroyed. And you might think that a person who has trained as a warfighter would rely on the skills that he was taught to apply his trade. Interestingly enough, however, he relied on other instruments, the instrument of interfaith dialogue. He called together diverse religious leaders in this environment, Chaldean Christians, Shiite Muslim, uh, uh, Sunni Muslims, and Mandians. Mandians are a congregation that follows the teaching of John the Baptist. And he brought them together and dialogue started. Dialogue continues and violence reduced. Now that's a simplification nonetheless true. And the credit doesn't go to one man. And of course, you might argue if the US never invaded Iraq, then his work might ever never be necessary. But the point is this. In a real life situation where peril was all around, 
It was interfaith dialogue which helped promote respect, tolerance, and the effective process of rebuilding Iraq. And it was by a Minnesotan, schooled in the ways of war, that relied upon this important tool. He's a proud and devout Christian man, but his faith wasn't a barrier, it was a bridge that helped him reach out to other people. Now let me tell you another story. Let me tell you another story. And this is a story about a friend of mine named Bruce Braley. Bruce Braley is a member of Congress down in, in Iowa, Waterloo, Iowa. And one day, he was confronted by a person with a microphone, stuck the microphone in his face and said, do you denounce the Ground Zero Mosque in New York? His response was, it's a local zoning issue and I support religious tolerance. Their response was a $1 million ad buy in Waterloo, Iowa. And you know, a million dollars goes a long way in Waterloo, Iowa, let me tell you. <laughs> in which they accused him of supporting the Ground Zero Mosque, though it wasn't a mosque and it wasn't on Ground Zero. The purveyors of this tradition that all of us are also familiar with weren't constrained by the facts, however. The ad they ran read this way. Quote, for centuries, Muslims have built mosques where they have won military victories. Now they want to build a mosque at ground zero. It's like the Japanese building at Pearl Harbor, unquote. Now, both these, both these instances are rooted in well-worn American traditions. General Nash didn't approach the problem he confronted all on his own. He was schooled in the tradition of American tolerance for all faiths. Any kid in school today can tell you that the pilgrims came to America for religious freedom. And of course, the other tradition is well-worn to and we're all familiar with it. This tradition of demonizing people based on difference is familiar to us. This tradition is as old as the Salem witch trials. It reared its head when Father Coughlin railed at Jews from his broadcast booth and shrine of the Little Flower in the state of Michigan. And it even poked its head out when JFK was opposed by some people because of his Catholic face. Sadly, this is a social potent force even in our time. So what path do we choose? What do we do? Confronted by the complexities of the world that we live in. We have a choice. We can choose fear and exclusion, or we can choose a spirit of inclusion and generosity. America has always been about competing visions, hasn't it? American history has been a contest between our highest ideals and our lowest fears. But America is fundamentally about inclusion, and inclusion has always, in the end, prevailed. And if you look at the trajectory of America's struggle for inclusion, you will see that it's been about a widening and expanding embrace for people. Now, of course, the progress has not always been linear. There have been setbacks. 
but it's always tended to include more and more people within its promise that each of us has the right to be able to pursue happiness. Traditions of inclusion, traditions of fear, both well-rooted in our history. But one will win out. And which one is based on what we do? When our country was founded, you know, being a white male did not guarantee you a vote. You had to be a white male Protestant property owner in order to cast a vote. But you know, with the Jacksonian era came white male suffrage. And decades later, after a bloody and momentous civil war that was uncertain at many points, black men won the right to vote, though the unencumbered right to vote took another 100 years to secure. Women, after many tough battles, secured the franchise in 1920. And then after a momentous civil rights movement, African Americans and others won the right to cast a free and un un unencumbered ballot, something we're still trying to protect. And even 18-year-olds were brought into the purview of freedom, choice of governance, and liberty. Of course, all along the way and along this struggle, we interned loyal Japanese Americans, we saw civil rights workers lynched, and even today, we see certain communities targeted with collective guilt, which often gets manifested as public policy. Our country was founded on protests and revolution. And in the independent Declaration of Independence, we said, we the people created our nation to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty. People make a mistake when they say that when these words were written, they weren't true. I say they weren't true yet. I say that they're aspirational in nature and America to be hoped for and to be worked for. An America that's yet to be, that's being built by us. I really look at these words and reflect upon them and think about them as America's prayer. People who look at our country's history and see only sins miss the point. People who look at our, our country's history and see none also miss the point. As Martin Luther King said, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But we got to bend it. So what is our country about? What will it be about? What kind of America are we going to build in this time? Because progress, because America is a work in progress, and progress is not certain, nor does it travel in a straight line. When we see millions unemployed, crumbling infrastructure, two wars, and overflowing prisons, people feel anxiety and they feel fear. When we see four million foreclosures and an estimated three million more to come, and wages having been stagnant for middle class people for 30 years, people feel anxiety and they feel fear. And when there is a prevailing anxiety that America may lose its place in the world, we're afraid that the world economy is going to relegate us to perhaps a lesser role in the future, then there is anxiety and there is fear and there are reactions. Which reaction and which response can we shape and can we form? You know, we know people in times like this who 
you know, will often act out of emotion and even prejudice. And sometimes they become fearful, and sometimes they look out for folks who they perceive to be their own, and they rail against people who seem to be the other of that particular day and time. But at times like this, it's also a good time to come together and remember that our nation was founded on a prayer for liberty and a belief that we are all in this together. A time to turn to each other, not on each other. When some of the loudest voices from our government and society say that the government can't help you, that the government's not there for you, and that you're on your own, we can say we're all in this thing together. When some people say they are the problem, they don't belong here, they can't be trusted, and we know how they are, we can say that we're all in this thing together. When this happens, we have a choice to make, and it's not certain, and it's not guaranteed, and it requires your individual action. We're answering the question of what America is all about every single day. You know, I believe at times like this, it's important for public leaders and faith leaders, Reverend Hart Anderson, to offer an alternative vision. And I was proud to hear President Obama declare at an iftar dinner not too long ago that all faith communities have a right to worship and build a house of worship wherever local zoning laws provide for such a space. Now, he got taken to task for that. And, in, and because of what he said, he was told to butt out it's a local issue but I'm glad he braved that criticism that he received. In fact, I believe that he was discharging the highest responsibilities of his office. But I'm also proud that President Bush visited Amah shortly after 9-11 and made public statements about how all Americans are within the protection of the law. But it's not all about presidents, and it can't be. It's not all about people in Washington, and it can't be. We have to answer the question about what America is all about locally. You've heard the well-worn saying, all politics are local, and it's true. But the struggle for inclusion is local as well. And it has to be manifested in the actions that take place right here at places like Westminster Presbyterian Church. It's got to take place in our local communities, north side, south side, all over Minnesota and across America, in its streets, in its towns, and in its rural communities. I remember a few years ago, Yom Kippur and Ramadan happened to come during the same time. And Rabbi Zimmerman of Temple Israel and Makram El Amin of Masjid and Nur decided to bring the congregations together. And so, since both communities would be fasting and then breaking their fast, the Christians said, well, we, we gotta see this if the Jews and the Muslims are coming together. We wanna, we wanna be there too. <laughs> and so, at the time when sundown came, Muslims went and did uh, their prayer, called Maghrib prayer, and Jews looked on and watched and probably learned something. And then Muslims sat to the back of the room as Jews undertook their Yom Kippur observances and rituals. 
And Muslims, I'm quite certain, learned quite a bit. It took local leaders withstanding the criticisms of people in perhaps both congregations to do this. But you know, uh, after the prayers and the rituals were, were completed, both congregations went down to the basement for a meal, and suddenly both Rabbi Zimmerman and both and, and Imam Makram el Amin discovered they had a problem. But they both stood in front of both congregations and declared it to be a good problem. 120 people said they were coming, and 180 people actually came. <laughs> and so imagine the good fortune of the interfaith connection being even more popular and even more well-supported than you anticipated. That's the kind of community that I'm so proud to represent. People share. And Rabbi Zimmerman and Imam El Amin said, we don't have enough chairs for everybody, so we will sit right here on the carpet, and anybody who doesn't have a chair is free to join us. And then so many people joined them on the carpet that he, they had to send people back to the chairs. <laughs> that scene would have been familiar in Egypt only a few weeks ago. This is in a country where only a few weeks before churches in Alexandria were bombed and Christian community was afraid and nervous. But as Egyptians, both Christian and Muslim, stood against a dictator that held them down for 27 years in Tahrir Square, in Liberation Square, Christians stood guard while Muslims prayed. And Muslims stood guard while Christians prayed. And the scenes are all over the internet. And I pray that you go and check them out. They may bring a little mist to your eyes when you think about the tremendous struggle those people, those brave people, were facing. And as Americans, this is a moment for us to recognize that the fundamentals of our nation let us recognize that interfaith cooperation is a value shared by people all over the world. Not just here, in America, in Egypt, in Iraq, everywhere. And of course, in all of those places, there are people who counsel division. Some would divide us while others unite. Some swear revenge for past grievances while others seek forgiveness. Some would swear and some would pander to fear and sectarianism. And we also have to recognize that some of us will promote the values and traditions that we all share. Some then would promote mistruths and misunderstanding and ignorance, and others would bring understanding and help people to know. Let me tell you, this is the spirit in which I was elected. How is somebody with only 10% of the district African-American and probably less than 2% Muslim ever to get elected if people operate only on identity politics? It is simply an impossibility if people can't find the inherent dignity in each and all of us in the 5th Congressional District. But it's true. Those folks in the 5th voted for me. <laughs> and it wasn't credit 
to me, it's credit to them. It's credit to the place where I come from. Credit to the people and the values that we share here. We reached out to Minnesotans on the basis of what they shared. A need for a fair economy, a need for clean air and clean water, a need to get out of Iraq, a need to have peace in the world and civil and human rights for all. And people responded. But when we set out to formulate our message, we didn't do it in a vacuum. We didn't do it in a vacuum. We actually relied on well-worn historic traditions of our country. We relied on the Liberty Bell. Do you know what's inscribed on the Liberty Bell? Does anybody know? On the Liberty Bell is written in, Le in the inscription from Leviticus. And you shall hallow the 50th year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants, and shall be a jubilee for you. If any, says any, who are dependent upon you become so impoverished that they sell themselves to you, you shall not make them serve you as slaves. They shall remain with you as hired or bound workers. They shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children shall be free of your authority. It doesn't say only people who were in the Hebraic tradition. It says any, it says all. But it says something similar in the story of the loaves and the fishes. You know the story when, when Jesus was teaching to the multitudes. It came around dinner time. And you know, he, he probably turned to his, his helpers and said, well, what do we got to feed the people? And you know, they looked and saw what they had and they said, man, we only got a couple of fish and five barley loaves. And you can imagine, somebody probably thought, man, you got to send them people home. They got to go. It's dinner time. It's not enough for us. But according to the scripture, Jesus begins to hand out the food. And according to the scripture writers, Reverend, there was more than enough. There was more than enough. They had to clean up what was left. Now, it could be that it was just a miracle. But even if it was, it wasn't done just for show. Maybe people went back to their villages and brought something to share. Or maybe people's perception of scarcity actually was not an accurate reflection of the abundance that was right there in front of them. But it was for all. It was for any. It was for the Sumerians who were there. It was for the Jews who were there. It was for the Mandians who were there. It was for anybody who was there listening. It was not exclusive, but inclusive. And of course, in my own tradition, the Quran tells us that it's wrong to build up a private fortune, and it is good to share your wealth fairly in order to create a just and decent society. And on the last day, one question that Allah, God, which just means God, will ask Muslims is whether they have looked after widows and orphans and the oppressed, and if they have not, they can't enter paradise. Now, it doesn't say the Muslim widows or the Muslim orphans, okay? It says widows, it says orphans, it says the oppressed. That's all. The traditions that we stand upon are shared traditions and are not exclusive. That doesn't mean all faiths are the same, but it means the values that we share are very, very similar, too similar for us to make any difference.
So what is America all about? I insist America is about an ever-widening and increasing embrace that we all count and we all matter and everyone counts and everyone matters. And we put that on everything that we do because it's what we believe in. It is what animates our action. But this is just one tradition in our country's history. There's a new study released by the Southern Poverty Law Center that describes a big rise in hate groups across the country. By its count, there are now more than 1,000 active extremist groups across the United States. You and I don't need to fight them. We simply need to stand for what we believe in. Evil cannot be overcome with evil, but with good. And we have to assert good relentlessly, tirelessly. And we, but we need to make, keep in mind that as we assert good, that there is always a competing vision. And we can never act naive as if there isn't. There is. Because as the Plymouths landed on Plymouth Rock in search of freedom, a few years later they burned witches. As people's faith compelled them to fight for the abolition of slavery, some people's faith helped them to justify it. When laissez-faire capitalism left economic castaways in the wake in the 1930s, we still had people like Dorothy Day who stood on her faith and helped found the Catholic worker movement to aid the poor. And so, in this moment, you're being called. Yes, you, you are being called. Economic enforcers in Latin America have drawn some people looking for a better life here. Will we recognize their essential dignity as fellow human beings, or will we scorn and blame them? Yes, a tiny group of Muslims have turned to terrorism and against what Islam teaches. And they killed 3,000 of our countrymen and women, and the people they killed were of all faiths. But also we know that when the first responders ran to those burning towers as others were running out, those people were also of all faiths. Which tradition will we embrace? It is ours to do. Will we demonize, blame, and reject, and maybe even employ the instrumentality of the law to persecute? Or will we embrace generosity and inclusion? We can celebrate interfaith heroes like MLK, JFK, Dorothy Day, and even General Richard Nash, but let's not forget our local folks who stand up every day to do the right thing, like Rabbi Marsha Zimmerman, Imam Makram El Amin, and even Reverend Hart Anderson, <laughs> and, and so many, many more. It's a choice. What America will we have? What Minnesota will we have? It's not guaranteed. Nationally, internationally, and locally. We have to be creative and act on what we value. Inclusion, shared prosperity, and equality before the law. How will we respond in our time? I submit we will respond by expanding our embrace. And just like my mother would say, we put more water in the gumbo. Because we have an company. <laughs> vision of an America as an expanding embrace. It's not guaranteed, but this tradition has always, always prevailed in the end. So thank you very much. 
Let me thank Reverend Hart Anderson for the introduction, and let me leave you with one final meditation. Our differences make us beautiful to God, and our humanity binds us together. Thank you. Thank you, Keith Ellison. Thank you for this audience here at Westminster Presbyterian Church. You're listening to a special interfaith forum broadcast live on NPR from Westminster Church in downtown Minneapolis on Nicollet Mall. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister here at Westminster and moderator of this forum. Our speaker today is Congressman Keith Ellison. And now while the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to recognize the organizations that are co-sponsoring today's event. They include Augustana Lutheran Church, the Basilica of St. Mary, Downtown Clergy Association, the Greater Minneapolis Council of Churches, Hennepin Avenue Methodist Church, the Jewish Community Relations Council, Masjid An-Nur, the Minnesota Council of Churches, the St. Paul Area Council of Churches, Spirit in the House, and of course, Westminster Presbyterian Church. And now, Mr. Ellison, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. Question about your own background. Who have served as your mentors? What individuals or persons in your background have helped shape you, and what lessons have they taught you? I was blessed with uh, wonderful parents who are still uh, together and still um, still with us. Uh, they live in the city of Detroit right now. My mother uh, is um, is a uh, social worker, and my my dad uh, is a psychiatrist, but he retired in '95 after having a stroke. But uh, they they both are active on the phone lines, and uh, my dad's a professional CNN watcher, so he uh, <laughs> he, he tells me everything going on. I'm like, don't you want to go back to work, Dad? You got to find him a hobby, man. But, <laughs> but um, those, are, those are the folks who, uh, who informed me. You know, I, I never met my uh, maternal grandfather. His name was Frank Martinez, but he was organizing black voters in rural Louisiana and, uh, before Brown versus Board of Education. And my mother still, to this day, talks about it like he's uh, living right down the street and often tells us about uh, things that he did. And, other, other people, uh, William McGee, who remembers Billy McGee? Anybody remember Billy McGee? Billy McGee was the uh, chief public defender and died at the age of 47 after many years of service to justice in our community. He was like an older brother to me and uh, I'll never forget him. Question about the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. What do you think about them? What, what do you predict about their future? Are they an inclusive or an exclusive group in your estimation? Well, a few points about the Muslim Brotherhood. First of all, um, the Muslim Brotherhood only, only has about 22% of the support of uh, Egyptians. They're not a majority group. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, did not lead the struggle in Tahrir Square. They didn't start it. They can't stop it. 
and after it got going, they just jumped on the band. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, has had a history of violence, but ever since about the early 80s, has renounced it. Uh, and it is true that they have a fairly uh, strict uh, religious uh, approach and believe that uh, politics should be infused with religious understanding. If I were an Egyptian, I doubt very, very seriously I would uh, be a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. In fact, all the people who I know um, reject it and don't want to be in it. And none of the people who are out in the streets were asking for more religion. They were asking for more bread, more peace, more freedom, more dignity. That's the tradition I subscribe to. But at the same time, I, I don't think that we as Americans should um, should, should, did not, should somehow not be fully in favor of democracy in Egypt because we fear that the Muslim Brotherhood might in some way play a role. I don't think we should, you understand what I'm saying? I don't think we should stand in the way of the people's movement for peace and freedom and dignity and democracy and free and fair elections because of the Muslim Brotherhood. I think what we should do is, is, is let the, the Egyptian people know that, that if, we, if we want democracy for ourselves, then we have to help facilitate it in a respectful and humble way to anyone who would want our help. And we should be there ready to be of assistance. Not to impose it, not to lecture, because of course Egyptian democracy will take on an Egyptian character. But, um, uh, and that would, may include the, the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, I think it's a mistake to exclude them because let them compete. You know, a lot of these groups that uh, hold religious orthodoxy as a piece of their political platform, sometimes they win in the beginning because people are just that disgusted with the exiting group. But a lot of times they start losing. Like in Pakistan, all these really strict religious groups, they, they won and then they, then, they, then they started losing because people said, you know, don't, don't give me a sermon, give me a loaf of bread, you know? And, and, and so, uh, not that there's anything wrong with sermons, <laughs> but man doesn't eat by bread alone. So, but, but this is the reality of the situation. So, good question, thank you for, my long, uh, thank you for listening to that long-winded answer. Uh, questions about Libya and yep. other Arab countries that are experiencing uh, unrest and turmoil. Any comments about, uh, from your perspective about what's happening there? Yeah, um, Libya, every, the, what's going on in the Middle East is, has common threads from country to country, but each country is very unique. And so it's not, it's not uh, we, I caution folks to look at the unique circumstances of every country. What's unique about Libya? What's unique about Libya is you live, Libya doesn't care what the world thinks about it. Muammar Gaddafi just doesn't care. He's, all, he's lived most of his time as a pariah state. So he's going to return to that. He doesn't care. He all, uh, 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 air pilots landing in Malta have already reported that he asked them to fire on the people. And they refused, so they had to leave. This is the kind of psychology of the person we're dealing with over there. I think we should stand with the Libyan people. I'm, I, don't, I need to continue to do more studying to decide to advise exactly what the U.S. should do, uh, but, I, but I will tell you this. We should not, we should, we, we need to be careful about being in economic relationships with people who use that exchange to oppress their people. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I, I'll, tell, I'll tell you right now, I, there, people who, who always default to sanctions 
need to know that sanctions often are not very effective, particularly when they're done unilaterally by one country. But, and they often help, they often hurt the most oppressed people in that country. But if the Western world told Libya, you know, yeah, you got 2% oil, and yeah, if we don't buy your oil, we're going to have higher oil prices, but we believe in liberty so much that we're willing to do that, we may not bring, that may not bring Gaddafi down, but at least we won't participating in his oppression of his own people, and I think that's worthy of serious consideration. Questioner wonders if you are being called upon by the administration in Washington to provide particular insight or counsel to them as they encounter and respond to these movements in Arab or Muslim nations. You know, they got a lot of smart people at the White House and at the State House, but I am in regular consultation with people in both of those entities and certainly in the Congress. And uh, so, you know, you know, nearly a day goes by that I'm not talking to somebody in one of those institutions about things. Often, usually I'm asking them what's going on. <laughs> but uh, I often do share my views and they're always, you know, well received. Can you tell us something of what you're sharing with them? Well, you know, I, you know, one of the things, I mean, I, I share the idea that, yes, I know sanctions are of limited utility and people often overestimate how effective they are. But I also think that when Egyptians in Tahrir Square are looking at tear gas canisters, which say made in America, that that's no, that's no good. <laughs> and, and, they, and I think folks know that. You know, I, 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 so I, these are things like that uh, thing. I mean, I, I met with Libyan, uh, Libyan uh, Americans just uh, the other day, just yesterday, six o'clock in the morning, you know, uh, and then got on the phone and shared with, you know, with, uh, with, with uh, the administration what they shared with me. Um, and uh, also, you know, talked about, uh, you know, actually, you know, tell people, tell them about individual personal stories about Americans living here who have families suffering there. You know, as a matter of fact, my good friend, uh, Imam Hamdi al-Sawaf is right here, how you doing? Give a hand to Hamdi al-Sawab, everybody. He's a good guy, yeah. He's uh, been indispensable in my understanding about things uh, happening in the, in the Middle East. Hamdi is from Egypt and uh, had breakfast with him this morning and said that one of his family members is still unaccounted for. Yeah, yeah. He lifted up in our prayers, Hamdi. A uh, number of questions about uh, particular uh, features of Islam. Uh, what about the status of women? Where do you stand on that in terms of inclusion? Well, you know, you, it's important to distinguish between Islam and what Muslims do. They're not the same. <laughs> I mean, uh, they're not the same. And by the way, it's the same, that's true for Christianity and Judaism. <laughs> right? Um, so, interesting. You're meddling now, you know. Okay. <laughs> Just stick to the question. You know, it's important to know that, you know, um, that life in the, or what we call the Arabian Peninsula today for women was absolutely in dreadful for, for, for women w before Prophet Muhammad came and began to teach and preach. Girls, um, women had, they, they didn't inherit anything. They were the inheritance. Do you understand what I mean? Uh, in, people wanted boys because they thought boys could help them in war fighting and in, I don't know, stuff like that. They would, they would bury infant girls. So Prophet Muhammad comes into a situation where women are absolutely oppressed, but not all women. There were some well-to-do women who had, had 
power and privilege in, but, but that was a tiny minority. The first person he talked about when he received revelation was his wife named Khadija. She was 15 years older than him. She was his boss. She was his employer. She proposed marriage to him. He worked for her. When he told, when, and, and when he began to get revelation, he went to her and told her what he heard. She then said, you know what, I'm not an expert on this stuff. She took him to her cousin who was a Christian, and her cousin then advised him that you are receiving divine revelation. And, and, and it was not only that, now he didn't marry anybody else until she died a natural death. Then he began to use marriage as a way to unite tribes and peoples, including Jews, including Christians. He had wives of both faiths. So I can tell you much, much, much more about how Islam came to liberate, free, and empower women. And I can also tell you that, you know, um, you know, Saudi Arabia is apartheid for women. It's a fact. I'm sorry. You know, anytime you can't drive a car, you can't go outside without having a ninja costume on. I mean, it's, it's wrong. You know, and, 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 and I think that more Muslims have to start saying it. And I'm going to tell you, this democracy movement you see spreading across the Middle East, you see all these young women helping not participate but also lead, this is going to be very beneficial to women's rights in the region and in Islam generally. And I will tell you that uh, uh, there's much work to do, and, uh, but, but I think things are blowing in the right direction. Even, but I'll tell you this, this is the last point I want to make on this. I, when I... When I accompanied Nancy Pelosi to, to Saudi Arabia, she, one of the first trips she had was to Saudi Arabia, Syria, Israel, uh, Palestine, and, um, and Lebanon. And she, everybody on the trip was a committee chair except for me. I came because they had never had a Muslim in Congress before. She's going, I mean, so, you know, somebody said, well, Keith, aren't you afraid about being a token? I said, I don't care, I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> and so I got on that plane. So anyway, so, so, when, so we met uh, King Abdullah, who's uh, about 85 to 90 years old and is the king of Saudi Arabia. And I asked him, I said, you know what? I'm so, we're, we are so proud about Nancy Pelosi as the first woman speaker. Before 1920, women couldn't vote in the United States either. But unless we had that, woman, that women's rights movement for inclusion, she, she could never dream of being the speaker of the house even today. But we did have that movement, and now we have the benefit of her brilliant leadership. And he said, well, um, I hope it doesn't take us as long as it took you. <laughs> and then he went on to elaborate on things that he's working on. The dynamics of that country are that you have the political leadership and you have the religious leadership, and the political leadership can't go so far before the religious leadership reacts. And so they have been having incremental change. But I think in a country where more girls graduate from college than boys, that that society is going to have a revolution of women's rights as well, and it would very much benefit that society. Because if you can't have a fully fleshed, growing, vibrant society when half of your population is oppressed. And, and, and uh, but you know, but, but in many, but see, but that's, but in many other countries, Muslim majority countries, you've had women head of state, and, of course, there are all problems. Women all over this world, including the United States, are struggling for, for equality, aren't they? So. Uh, as, a, as a Muslim in the U.S. Congress, you certainly have uh, uh, 
international reputation, you're known. Uh, are you able to use uh, your particular religious background and, and commitments as a way to bridge between uh, uh, constituencies and, and particularly overseas in diplomatic capacities? Have you been to Gaza, for instance, uh, where perhaps other Congress people might not have been so welcome there? Can you talk about what it is to be a Muslim in, in the U.S. Congress with the foreign issues on our plate? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's really a mixed bag. Sometimes my faith shared by some others overseas is a point of, of, uh, of contact and is, a real, and is a bridge. Other times, they really couldn't care. I mean, when I was in Pakistan, they're like, so what, you're a Muslim. There's 180 million Muslims here. <laughs> yeah. And so it's really kind of a mixed bag. Um, it does help me in terms of having some insight as to how people might feel, how they might think. And, uh, and it's, it's been a benefit, but, it's, but it gets overplayed a little bit too much. Any comments about the centrality of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in bringing us to peace in the Middle East? Well, it's critically important. Of course, if we solved the Israeli-Palestinian conflict today, it wouldn't solve every problem. All you got to do is look at the map and see, you know, from Bahrain to Morocco and all in between, these societies have tremendous problems that got nothing to do with Israel, okay? But people who say that Israel has nothing to do with the conflict in the Middle East are also wrong, in my opinion. It is a very important thing, and I think that it needs to be resolved. I think it's in the United States' uh, best interest to resolve it, and I think that I, I, I admire the fact the president has tried. I'm saddened by the fact that he's not received the kind of cooperation that he, he needs. I don't think it's too much to ask uh, settlement expansion in, in the West Bank to stop. I think it's a fair thing to ask for. Um, <clears throat> And I think it should happen. Um, but, I, but I will tell you that it is very, very important, is it in the, and it is in the interest of the United States to try to help these two sides uh, come to a conclusion uh, and a resolution. And I will also tell you this. I, I really do believe that if that conflict got resolved in a way that both parties either equally liked or equally hated, but it was resolved, uh, it would be uh, a tremendous benefit to both Israel and Palestine. Uh, economically speaking, uh, there's a lot of there's there's so much trade that could take place. There's so much development, so much innovation, so much science. I mean, the Middle East could really flower as a region if uh, we we dealt with the, the Israel-Palestinian conflict. We dealt with these uh, authoritarian dictators. We did, and, and 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 it would it would really be a tremendous benefit for to the average uh, person living in the Middle East, whether that person be Bahraini, Saudi, Israeli, no matter. It would, it would be a great benefit. A number of our questioners ask about what it is to be a person of no faith, but simply a person of goodwill. Yep. Uh, does your understanding of inclusion extend to atheists and others who are not part of a particular religious tradition? Absolutely. Uh, many of you all, uh, I see uh, Reverend Germani was here. I think he may have left. Is he gone already? Yeah. Oh, he had to hit the door? Now well, Jim knows. The whole world well, knows that Jim left her. Oh, sorry, Jim. <laughs> but... but but let me say this, um, every, about every quarter, we have an interfaith roundtable. We've had Ibu Patel here to talk about issues. We've had Joshua Debra of the White House, um, uh, uh, faith-based uh, neighborhood services come in, and we've done a number of things. Uh, and we always invite the non-theists or atheists, and 
uh, and the non-theists know that when they invite me to come to their group to talk, I always accept that invitation if it's in my, if it's in my calendar to do so. And uh, I've had a number of excellent conversations. Uh, someone asked me, well, as a Muslim, not, not as a congressman, but as a Muslim, how do you feel about atheists? You know, the Quran says, there shall be no compulsion in religion. I can't tell, I can't, I don't even think I can judge, let alone try to enforce my views about religion on anyone else. I regard it as something that my religion prohibits. So I'm more than, if you do well and treat people right, that's about all anyone could expect. There's a lot of very, very religious people who do a lot of bad things, so I, I, give me an atheist over them anytime. Number of questions about the extreme partisanship uh, in politics today. Uh, you as a, a representative in, in Congress, uh, what's your perspective on how to overcome that? Well, you know, uh, it's, it's a highly complicated issue. One of the most complicating factors is that each one of us, all 435 of us, are sent to sent from a district of made up of about 700,000 uh, uh, people, uh, and those people expect us at least to to act on what we said we were going to act on, right? So here's the reality: as as those as we fight each other in Congress, and the arena is very very visible. It's up on C-SPAN, and we bicker back and forth. Um, the folks who sent us there sent us there on the agenda that usually people are fighting over. Do you understand my point? We need to deal with some nonpartisanship and bipartisanship across America, too. And, and, and I'll tell you another quick story, Rev. Um, Reverend, excuse me. I don't want to forget the formality of the moment. Um, it's important to, uh, to, to remember, on the one hand, Joe Wilson, Congressman Wilson, stood up in a State of the Union address and accused the President of the United States uh, of lying. You lie. All, everybody remembers that, right? Now, you think that, that would, people, that's frowned upon. People would feel like, wow, what a horrible thing. That's, you should apologize. His campaign call first started being flooded with money. Okay, now, a good friend of mine, because I'm, I'm going to be fair, Alan Grayson, he's a friend. Uh, uh, got up and said, here's the Republicans' health care plan. First, don't get sick. If you do, die soon. <laughs> now, some people thought that, you know, as accurate as they may believe that to be, it was intemperate to say it that way. And his coffers got flooded after he said it. So what are the incentives? Moderation? Calm, reaching out on a bipartisan basis, or throwing out red meat to the base? Where are the incentives? I think we have to have an American conversation about polarization, civility. Thank you very much, Congressman Keith Ellison.